Welcome to this extended podcast edition of Straight Talk Wealth Radio. Heard across America on broadcast stations and after the show podcasts. Heard right here on the internet. With your experts in all aspects of retirement planning, wealth preservation, and income planning, guaranteed to last a lifetime. And now, your host of Straight Talk Wealth, Bruce Whitey. Hey guys, how you doing? Uh, it's Bruce here. I am alone in the studio. And this is a, sort of an extended podcast. Actually, I don't know if it's a shortened podcast or extended podcast. What I want to do is I had a great talk with Harry S. Dent. I attended a summit in Phoenix just last week with Harry and some incredible other guests that he had, university professors, hedge fund traders, and got a lot, a lot of stat analysis about what was happening in the planet and uh, where the world economies are going. And particularly right now of interest is certainly Europe. It's in the news. It's on everybody's mind. And uh, Harry had some fantastic analysis done of Spain, which is going to be really uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back by all uh, looks and appearances of this. Anyway, so I got back on uh, this week and I got an interview with Harry. Had to wake up early in the morning, get him 9 o'clock Eastern, which was 6 o'clock my time. We sat down, we had a conversation. And while we're featuring it on our show about Europe this week, I wanted to get the raw audio right out to you and let you hear that and uh, enjoy just a straight conversation. So not a whole lot I'm going to pitch in on this. I will probably come back and do a more a complete extended podcast as well as our broadcast show on the subject. But for those of you who hear us regularly, by the way, I'd love to hear from you and know that you listen to the podcast and that this information is valuable to you. You can always write me at Bruce at straighttalkwealth.com. Bruce at straighttalkwealth.com. Certainly go check out our website. I'm not sure how you're hearing this podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes and a lot of the other uh directories. You can go to our website to get the podcast. If you haven't seen our website, go there at straighttalkwealth.com. Straighttalkwealth.com. We've got a video interview I did at the end of 2011 with Harry that is uh, about an hour long. And we've got a lot of other information. There's uh, a lot of stuff on the banking system is still very, very frail. We've got shows on who's goosing the market. Why is the market doing so well when the economy is doing so poorly? And all of that really lends into this interview. So without further ado, I want to just let you listen to uh, our talk that we had with Harry and enjoy. And let me know what you think by writing me at Bruce at straighttalkwealth.com. So, Harry, why should Americans who are trying to save for retirement in the next five to 10 years be so concerned about Europe today? Well, you know, we kind of triggered the first global crisis with our subprime crisis and lending here when, when, when that whole financial system and our real estate started to melt down it triggered a worldwide crisis because we're all interlocked and markets around the world tend to largely move together well Europe is triggering the second crisis we've had more success at stimulating our economy although of course we've warned people that will not last uh, but, but Europe has not been able to have the same success in stimulating the economy uh, they have the same broad demographic problem we have. Um, their baby boom generation is aging. They don't have as big a baby boom, uh, echo baby boom over there, eventually to pull them out. So, so another thing about Europe is it's a very long-term 
slowdown for a lot of countries there, especially Southern Europe. And, and Southern Europe is the part of Europe that is having the biggest problems, and, and it's partly because of more debt, partly because of less competitive wages and, and higher entitlement programs, but it's just partly simply because they are aging faster than Northern Europe and the United States. Uh, they're kind of like the next part of the world to go the way of Japan and just to have too many old people uh, and too few young people. So, so this is not something that is going to turn around uh, with stimulus. And on top of that, you've got this huge divide between Northern Europe and Southern Europe, um, which makes it hard to stimulate because the Northern Europe, European countries, especially Germany, do not want to endlessly bail out and stimulate for countries that they perceive as having, you know, weaker uh, economies, work ethic, higher debt, and that sort of stuff. So you also have this divide in Europe that you don't have in the United States. We have one Federal Reserve in one uh, kind of policy-making body, and, and we don't have this giant schism between the North and the South. Yeah, okay. So I got that, but let me ask you this. Why, you know, we bounce back, things move forward, we'll get through this. Why should Americans who are trying to save for retirement in the next five to ten years, why should we get all wrapped around a poll about Europe today? I mean, are we going to be, are we going to be still dealing with this ten years from now? Uh, we are on and off. I mean, the demographics, and you know, this is, demographics are crystal clear. We know exactly when people spend money, when generations are going to be spending more and when they're going to be spending less. And, and this is the United States and Europe. We all have um, slowing demographic trends, all the developed countries, uh, well into the early the next decade, 2020 and 2023. So it's not just Europe slowing down here. Remember, we slowed down first. We have a major slowdown. The difference is we've been able to stimulate more effectively. Um, so, I mean, that's the big difference. We don't have as high... Of government debt, say Italy and Greece, you know, that, that have been enormous, that, that kind of stand in the way. I mean, what you have in Southern Europe is you have countries who can't run the printing press like we do. Only the ECB, uh, the central bank there, and of course, the United Kingdom can do it because they're outside of the euro, but all the countries in the eurozone are tied to the euro. They don't have control over their monetary policy. They can't just say, oh, we're going to print a trillion dollars. If the ECB says they're going to do it, which they finally did uh, late 2011, early 2012, then they can throw stimulus in their economy. But, you know, they kind of did it uh, a little bit late in the game, and, and you've got Spain about to crack up. Uh, and, and so even though Europe just threw over a trillion dollars of stimulus, you know, as big as our QE1, larger than our QE2 into their economy, they're already struggling months later because Greece doesn't want to go through with austerity. Uh, France doesn't want to in the elections. And Spain is about to blow up. From my point of view, Bruce, Spain is the number one issue in the world right now because they're the straw that could break the camel's back and, over there. And, and I want to get back to Spain in a minute, but, but you say something here that sort of, uh, it, it, it makes me wonder because our stock market, no matter what, just seems to be barely affected. It seems like the Fed has been pretty good at keeping things propped up, moving forward. And you talked about they can't stimulate like we can stimulate. So I think a lot of people in this country still don't take quite the concern that you do that this is going to have 
uh, deepening effects in America. Just you know, I mean, yes, we can stimulate. So the Fed should be able to stimulate us back out of this one. What's going to prevent the Fed from being able to be as effective as he has been in in keeping us out of trouble? Why, why can't if if we've got so much more uh, ability to to put our hand on the stick shift and 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 shift into low and keep this thing going? What's going to put an end to that? Well, you know, stimulus has a price. You can't stimulate forever. I mean, we got into this mess because we've been stimulating since the 1970s. Every time our economy has slowed down, the Fed has stepped in and lowered interest rates and, and, and you know, increased fiscal policy and all this sort of stuff to stimulate. Our economy's never really gotten to kind of work off the, uh, uh, you know, extremes in debt and the inefficiencies and stuff. I mean, downturns are there for a reason. We need to inhale and exhale as an economy, and, and the Fed just treats this as a machine, like we're this inorganic machine that you can just set the thermostat on 3% growth and 2% inflation and then just control it. It just doesn't work that way. This is how we got in the crisis. We ran up way too much debt at the government level, trade deficits with other countries, and private debt, which we emphasize more than most economists. Our private debt got up to $42 trillion in the U.S. alone way more, three to four times our government debt. This came from the same types of policies. We can't let the economy go down. We've always got to help in every crisis. We've got to stimulate, stimulate, stimulate. You know, we can't let there be a slowdown. We can't let debts, debts delever. We can't let banks go under or businesses fail. That's what got us in this stretch position that finally literally just burst. People got to remember, the housing bubble didn't burst because our economy failed, it just burst because it got so stimulated with such low interest rates and, and high debt lending to households. I mean, households went from borrowing three times their, their pre-tax income to nine times in just five years. I mean, that is absolutely absurd. So the government got us in this position from stimulus. Now they're saying, oh, we got too much debt, the economy's broken by it you know, basically in a coma. We're going to add more debt. We're just going to keep putting more debt. We're going to keep the bubble going. Why? We don't want it to burst, because if it bursts, the consequences are going to seem too bad. Banks are going to fail. Companies are going to fail, just like we saw in 2008. 2008 was exactly like 1930. Economy melting down, financial institutions failing, companies failing, but the government says no. $2 trillion in stimulus says we're not, you know, this ain't going to happen. So you keep doing that. The markets keep going up. Look at these markets. They're in another bubble. How much farther can stocks go before they just burst of their own bubbleness? Well, I've, I've got some really good charts that say, you know, the Dow can't go past about 15,000-something in, in the S&P 1600 without forming another major bubble top and crashing of its own will. How, and, you know, we started stimulating when, when the economy had contracted 6% in money supply. There was deflation. And now, if they come up with a QE3, mm-hmm. which they probably will in the next few months with a slowing, they're going to be stimulating when inflation's already in the 3% plus range. And what if they bump inflation to 5 6%? Well, that's, that's going to be against their, their policies, their 2% stay at gold. So if you keep stimulating, you ultimately you pervert the economy. You get investors and businesses to take risks they shouldn't. When you push short-term interest rates to zero, you're pretty much saying to the market, there's no risk. You push long-term interest rates under 2%, less than the inflation rate, you're saying there's no risk. And guess what? The, the markets are kind of like a, one of us on a, on a ride on Disneyland where you, get, you, know, you go up and down like a roller coaster. You're not even moving, but your body <laughs> thinks you're moving. 
the stock markets are acting like there's no risk in the riskiest time with the highest debt levels around the world and demographics crashing ever. The stock markets are acting like there's no risk and they just go up, 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 up. Well, the Fed puts money into the economy to stimulate. They do that by buying bonds from banks. The banks turn around and reinvest that money, often at high leverage, to make earnings to offset the fact that they're not making money on loans and they're losing money on loans. That keeps the banks alive. But it pushes up stocks and commodities. We've seen stocks, commodities, bonds of all type, all appreciate for the last three years at the same time. That's never happened in history. This is an artificial market. So don't look at the stock market. We always say the market's on crack. Market on crack, it's being fed by stimulus. The economy's artificially bouncing on stimulus. The markets are artificially bouncing on stimulus. And the markets just want more crack. The markets have been pouting lately because they're like, oh, well, the Fed's not going to immediately give us another QE3, so we're going to go down. We're pouting. Just want more crack. Do not listen to this market. It, it could crash just as fast as it did in yeah. 2008 or in 2000, 2002, or 1987, we've had bubble after bubble burst, and we've got another bubble that's going to burst, probably going to start to burst in the next 6 to 12 months. All right. Give us an example of how mired these countries are in years. Tell us about your recent uh, stat analysis of the Spanish economy. It was quite uh, detailed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spain really is the critical country because the theory in Europe's been, well, I mean, first of all, Germany and some of the northern countries, they don't want to bail out Greece and Portugal and Spain and Italy. They, they consider them not to have the work ethic to do, not to be as competitive, uh, to be more debt-prone, all this stuff. They're only bailing them out because they want to contain this crisis. I mean, Germany has as bad a demographics going forth as, as most of southern European countries without strong exports. Germany would not have a growth economy. So they, they've said, okay, well, we'll bail out Greece. But if, if they agree to some austerity, we'll bail out Portugal, Ireland, because they're small. But Spain is big. It's the fourth largest country in Europe. But, but here's the important thing. I really looked at Spain in the last four to six weeks, and there's been some good analysis done uh, by Carmel Asset Management. Basically, mm -hmm. Spain is worse than Greece, and here's why. They both have terrible demographics. I mean, much slower than most countries coming in. It's the same with Italy and all of Southern Europe. But the difference is Spain had a massive, and I mean a massive real estate bubble, bigger than the United States. Their bubble lasted three years longer. It went 30% higher in magnitude, but, but it was more pervasive in their country. Here's some two incredible statistics. At the top of the Spanish real estate bubble, 13% of their workforce was in construction alone, not all the other parts of the housing industry and things that feed in, just construction workers, 13% of the economy. How does that compare to what we were doing here in the States? 5.8% at the top of the bubble. Yeah, I think we all know a lot of unemployed construction workers in this country, and if they're 13 and we're 5, that, that's a big difference. Two and a half times as many. So, so what you have today, Greece, people here, Greece has 21% unemployment, 50% youth unemployment. Spain has 24.4% unemployment, 51% youth unemployment. Abs absolute depression levels, disaster. Now, and, and here's the worst part. If you look, we, we have an indicator for housing that we use. It's 30 to 39-year-olds. We can project the number of 30 to 39-year-olds. Those are the prime home buyers, probably mm -hmm. buy 80% of the homes in a country. Spain's 
um, that demographic peaks right around you know 2010 and drops 40 percent. Now this is almost as much as Japan or you know Italy is similar and other Southern European and Germany. 40 percent over the next 20 years. In other words. They've way overbuilt housing. They got massive mm -hmm. unemployment because of it and a slow economy. And there's no way demand's coming back from housing. It's going to drop even more. So there's, from our point of view, there's no way to bail out Spain. Um, they're too big, but they have, they have a worse, it's the how, the real estate bubble. Ireland and Spain had the biggest real estate bubbles in Europe. Again, both bigger than the United States. We're still reeling from our real estate bubble. All this stimulus hasn't put back Humpty Dumpty again. Housing prices are still falling years later, despite the lowest mortgage rate. So imagine trying to stimulate Spain out of this when they overbuilt way more, and their demographics for housing are way, way worse. So Spain is unbailable outable. If Germany and the ECB start to bail out Spain, if they, if they give it and say, you know, we said we wouldn't do this, first $150 billion, they're going to have to put out another 150 then another 150 They've already put out two rounds of like $100 billion plus for Greece. Spain's bill is going to be, you know, five times higher, and, and it's going to take – there's no way you can turn it around. So, so what's important about Spain to me, and I think it's a good thing, Europe's been in la-la land and denial, thinking they can, you know, contain this thing and stop the largest debt bubble and demographic bubble in history. And the same in the United States. We've had more success where we say you can't stop 92 million baby boomers from saving. That's what they're going to do demographically. You can't stop $42 trillion in debt from deleveraging. Sooner or later, it's going to delever, and it's good for the economy. So, so that's the whole thing there. Europe's in kind of this denial. Spain is going to force the issue because you can bail out Greece. Yeah, it hurts, but it's small enough. You can't. You start. You bail out Spain. It's going to really take hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, and then it's going to say, "Well, if you bailed out Spain, then you got to bail out Italy, and Italy's even bigger." And then comes France, and, and the whole totem pole. And you got to remember, every time countries fail in Europe, it puts more pressures on bailouts and slowing in exports to the other countries like Germany and France and in Finland and, and Scandinavia and Belgium and the Netherlands, the stronger countries in England, and they get weaker. I mean, England's in a recession right now. France is in a recession. So the whole thing gets weaker. So, so this is a spiral. Because of the, as we said, the split between the North and the South, the very different uh, demographics and different uh, wage competitiveness and, and, and debt levels, which tend to be higher and all of the worse in the South, you don't have this unity there. Uh, and at some point, the North's going to say, we're not going to bail out the South anymore. And then either the, some countries like Spain, Greece, and Portugal are going to have to exit from the euro, or they're going to have to construct a, a dual eurozone where they may still trade freely, but there's two. There, there's a northern euro that trades at X, and there's a southern euro currency that trades at X. And, and you know, the southern euro countries can devalue more if they want and do things like that. But there's no easy solution. This, if you devalue your currency, your inflation rates go up from imports and stuff. And, and so, you know, but your exports go up and it helps your economy. So, But there's no easy way out of this. Europe's going to be in pain for years. Right. As we kind of hinted at earlier, Bruce, the demographics don't turn around for Germany, Switzerland, Austria, Italy, Greece, Spain and Portugal, they don't ever turn around. They didn't have an echo boom. Hmm. Turn around somewhat down the road for France, England, uh, and, the, and the Scandinavian countries, but, but they don't turn around in Europe. We have an echo boom 
that a decade from now will drive our economy back up again. It's not the same size generation. We won't see a boom as strong as 83 to 2007, but we have an echo boom. Um, most of Europe doesn't. So, so Europe really, this is a, to me, this is a long-term peak for most of Europe. Europe's never going to be what it was, and you're going to see countries like Japan that are shrinking in population and workforce for decades to come. How do you grow? when your workforce is shrinking and the people who, who are in your country are only older and older. It's, it's like a, a long-term retirement home. Yeah, so let, let's go back and focus on the baby boom generation here in America that is approaching retirement, and uh, they've got five to ten years, or they're beginning now. How bad will the repercussions of Europe ultimately be for American investors that are at this stage of life. What are the dangers here? Well, you know, it, it, it's not so much that Europe is going to sink us long term. It's that Europe triggers the next global downturn. We have mass. We have, uh, you know, a massive demographic slowing over the next decade. We have the greatest debt bubble in history. In fact, you know, we're we're more in debt than many countries in Europe, less than than the, than, uh, the UK and Ireland but more than most other European countries when you add up all the public and private debt. So we had our own debt crisis. Everybody saw how bad the economy got in 2008. If the government had not stepped in with, with the most massive stimulus program in history and hadn't guaranteed every damn loan and bailed out every company, we would be in a Great Depression already. So we've got a depression brewing without Europe. The, the importance of Europe is that while we're here, you know, just stimulus after stimulus, if Europe wasn't do, looking so bad, people wouldn't be rushing into our impoverished bonds. I mean, a 10-year mm -hmm. treasury, the deficits we got and the potential deficits and the entitlements of debt shouldn't be trading at 1.8%. It ought to be trading at 4 to 5% and rising in rates. The government has kept that down. So, so Europe, Spain blows up, Europe blows up. They're slowing, hits our exports, hits our banks, and all our credit default swaps, and all these ways we're intertwined. It spooks our market. The only reason our market's corrected over the last couple of years is almost always been around Europe, because if our economy starts to slow, then the market's assumption is, well, we're going to get more crack. We'll get more stimulus, and that'll cure that short term. But when Europe starts to blow up or something, we don't have any control over that. That will affect our economy, will affect our banks and investors, and then that triggers our economy slowing down. And then guess what? Between the slowing of Europe and the U.S., that hits China's massive export machine. And, and China's the most overstimulated, bubbled economy in all of history. Worse than us. Worse than Europe. China's bubble and real estate bubbles uh, burst. And then countries, all the emerging countries in South America, Middle East, Africa, and everywhere in Asia, feeding China 50% of the industrial metals in the world, for example. Their exports collapse, and we have a worldwide crisis. Europe, North America, China and East Asia, and then the emerging world, We all, and we see a worldwide collapse. So it's kind of like a, you know, a totem pole. These things uh, just keep triggering each other, but, but everybody's due for a crisis. China's overexpanded. Emerging countries depend a lot on export of raw materials and commodities, and we show a 29 to 30-year very reliable commodity cycle peaking here in recent years, and commodities, on that alone, we could be predicting a collapse in commodity prices. This is what triggers it. China falls, commodity prices go with it. Commodity prices are already bouncing a lot less than stocks and economies because China is slowing, and everybody knows it's got to slow.
Okay, last question here, Harry. Thanks so much uh, for the information so far. Here's the last question. So let's talk about strategy through this period, which we, which I believe you see really as a as a decade ahead of uh, quite some turmoil before we come out of this. Hopefully, if we come out of it, hopefully if we don't keep de- forestalling and forestalling and forestalling, letting the dead growth fall so we can have new growth, uh, maybe we'll be a decade into this. Explain the move from assets to income and why the income becomes so much more important in the coming decade than trying to grow an asset base. Well, you know, you know, first of all, we've had a bubble in all assets, commodities, stocks, real estate, business value, you know, you name it, you know, gold and silver and everything and oil. The key in a bubble like this is to preserve the assets you have built up, your business, whatever you own in real estate, stocks, et cetera, financial assets, which means you've got to convert them to cash, number one. So preserve your asset values. These assets are going to fall. And they're going to be worth, you know, 10, 20, 30 cents on the dollar typically. That happened in the Great Depression. That happens in every debt bubble that bursts in history. Assets go down, debts go down. The second, so, so what's important in what we call this winter season over the next decade is cash and cash flower king. Convert assets, all the assets you can, especially real estate that's so illiquid and hard to sell to cash. And what you do invest in, you invest in your own business, cutting costs. Uh, expanding against your competitors while they're failing. You invest in assets that generate cash flow, like if you can buy foreclosed single-family houses at you know, 70 80% off, turn around and rent those to young families who are scared to death to buy a house now uh, or can't qualify for a loan, and generate positive cash flow because you bought the house so cheap, then you're generating cash flow at a time when most businesses and, and people are losing cash flow. Their assets are going down. Their earnings are going down in their business because it's a tough time. It's a survival of the fittest. So the people who have cash and cash flow convert their assets to either cash or cash flow producing assets. No longer am I going to buy real estate or stock or anything else because it's going to go up in value. Hey, that already happened. We had a bubble and all this stuff. It's going to go down. Everything. Procter and Gamble, the safest stock to the riskiest high-tech stock, they're all going to go down to different degrees. Real estate across the board is going to go down in most cases. So that's the point. Now, with the most important point, when everything's deflating, mm-hmm. if you've got cash and cash flow, then when this crisis happens, you're going to be able to buy whatever you want in life, buy your competitors' assets or their business and your business, buy your dream home, beachfront you know, vacation or retirement home. Buy companies at 10, 20 cents on the dollar. I mean, you name it. Gold, silver. If you like gold, then wait. Buy it when it's, you know, two to four hundred dollars an ounce, not now at, you know, sixteen hundred to two thousand dollars an ounce. So you buy things at bargains and you build long-term wealth again because we will see a boom to follow this. It won't be as strong. And the only other thing about your question, Bruce, is that yes, we do see this as a decade-long crisis ahead of us. You know, most of these downturns. 68 to 82, 1930 to 42, last 13 to 14 years before the next generation and cleansing kind of cycle brings us out. But the worst of this crisis, like in the Great Depression, should come on the front end. The Fed has, has kept this crisis off for years. We, we should be coming out of this by now if we'd have had this debt deleveraging and gone through a crisis like Iceland did. The worst of this ought to be probably between late 2012 and early 2015, roughly. It's when the banks mm-hmm. and the debt deleverage that you see the biggest stock crash, the biggest devaluation 
almost all the fireworks went on between 1930 and 33. We had an incredible rebound uh, from 1933 to 37, and then we had a second kind of deflationary recession, uh, 38, 39, and then kind of crawled into World War II and came out of this. So the worst of it is likely to come in the next few years. If you can just get through the next few years, protect your assets, generate cash flow, survive in your business while your competitors go under, you're going to do well for decades to come. Great. Okay, Harry, thanks so much for uh, the whole topic, and um, I'll catch up with you soon. Hey, okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that. Let me know what you think by writing me at bruce at straighttalkwealth.com. Go visit our website, straighttalkwealth.com. Lots of great information there, all the old podcasts and stuff. Check us out on iTunes, and uh, look at our retirement roadmap. Could be of use to you. Talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening.